Welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. All right, welcome back to Dignity, Respect, and Action, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Neff Walker. I'm excited because we have a great conversation lined up for you today. We have with us Dr. Scott Auerbach from the College of Natural Science. He is here to talk about UMass ICON's program. ICON stands for Integrated Concentration in Science and to discuss the racism and diversity in STEM. Dr. Auerbach is a professor of chemistry and chemical engineering here at UMass and is the Mahoney Family Executive Director of the ICONS program. Scott, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Neff. So I want to, I, I like to start the pod with just getting to know you as our guest. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to get things going by asking questions to the guests about themselves and their relationship to UMass. So can you tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how you came to be a part of the UMass community? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a chemist. And, um, and when I think about that, it kind of traces back to high school. I had a terrific high school uh, chemistry teacher. I think a lot of us were inspired at some point by somebody earlier in our lives, an educator earlier in our lives. So this is Mrs. Driscoll. And if you're out there, Mrs. Driscoll, I just want to say, hey, thank you very much for your work. And um, And so, but the funny thing is I was also very much in love with uh, sports. So I played four years of football in high school and one year in uh, college. And in college, I definitely figured out that football is not good for your health. So that's why I stepped away. But my goal was actually to become a sports medicine doc for a professional football team. That was actually, yeah, that, that, that was the goal. I have to ask Uh, the question, what position did you play? Well, you're not going to believe this, but I was an offensive lineman. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm about 165 pounds sopping wet. Nowadays, offensive linemen are like 300. Yes, they are. Pounds. They are very big. Um, but that's, a, again, that's why I realized that this is not good for, for my health. Um, yeah. But uh, um, yeah, so the plan was, that was a plan. So I, uh, I went to Georgetown and in uh, Washington, D.C., and um, the thing there was they have a great med school and they have, they had a lousy football team. So I could, you know, play on their football team. That was basically the plan. And, uh, I actually got an internship through a friend of a friend working at NYU because my parents are in New York city, uh, working in the, uh, the neurosurgery department of all places, studying stroke, using a rat model to study stroke. And suffice to say, it was, it was gross. I mean, I had to chop off rat, rat heads and they had to fall into liquid nitrogen. I had to scoop out the rat brains and do all this stuff. And I quickly realized at that point, med school was probably not in the cards. <laughs> and so I kind of pivoted. And at about the same time I was doing that, I actually had the opportunity to be a math tutor at Georgetown. And that's when I had, you know, I would work with 
folks and I worked with some of the folks on the Georgetown basketball team and teaching them exponential growth and decay. And, and when you'd see the light go on, that's when I fell in love with um, teaching. So at about the same time, I realized, you know, maybe I shouldn't go to med school. Maybe I should go to grad school for this chemistry thing and become a chemistry prof. Um, so that was kind of the first, there's always a bunch of plot points. My second plot point came when I was in the middle of grad school and I was talking to my mom about the work that I was doing. And it was very kind of fundamental. This is out in Berkeley, California. And um, she asked me, now she's not a scientist, but she's very, very smart lady. And she asked me like, what, why are you doing this? Why are you studying what you're studying? And I tried to explain to her, you know, it's a very simple reaction, but if we can't understand this, blah, 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 we can't understand it, anything else. And then it hit me that not only was she not convinced, I was not convinced. <laughs> that why I was doing the right stuff. And at that uh -huh. point, I realized I'm interested in not only science, but engineering. Uh -huh. So building that bridge. And so when I came to UMass, one of the goals was I, I, I saw a real opportunity to build a bridge between the kind of research we do in chemistry. And I'm a chemist at heart, but I saw an, an opportunity to build a bridge between our chemistry department and the chemical engineering department that we have, uh -huh. which is also very strong. And that's a bridge that I've been working on. And so all of my, or most of my collaborations over the years in research have been with the chemical engineering department. Fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, can, you, can you remind us of how long you've been at UMass? Yeah, 26 years and time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. Fantastic. So I want to pivot a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You've talked recently about racism in science and STEM. Yeah. and how a history of racism has not only had an impact on diversity in the STEM fields, but is a barrier to solving some of the complex scientific challenges that we are all facing today, from COVID to global warming. Um, can you talk a little bit about how science has historically excluded Black, Brown, Native, Indigenous folks, for instance? Um, of course, there are other groups that science has yeah. excluded. Um, yeah. And how has that shaped STEM fields today? Yeah, so thank you for this question. And I am I feel like I'm the new kid on the block here. So I just wanna you know, recognize that there are some eminent scholars on this campus who've mm -hmm. been studying this for many, many years. I mean, mm -hmm. I've gotten a lot of help and a lot of advice from folks like Dr. Uh, Linda Ziegenbein, who is mm -hmm. in charge of uh, uh, diversity advising in the College of Natural Sciences from Dr. Buju uh, 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 Dasgupta, who is in mm -hmm. our psychology department, who's an expert on uh, implicit bias. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, and I just wanted to mention those two, but there are many eminent scholars on this campus who've uh, studied and written about this topic. So I'm the new kid on the block. And, uh, and I just wanna mention that my, uh, you know, my emphasis on this, my sort of, you know, commitment as executive director of ICONS really came after the George Floyd murder and when the scales fell from my eyes and I started to recognize the nature of, or a little bit better, the nature of institutional racism and my own white, white male, you know, privilege and trying to come to grips with what white privilege and male privilege uh, means. And what I did was I really tried to apply that to our work in, you know, ICONS. And part of that was I had the opportunity to give this honors lecture 
in September of uh, 2020. Uh-huh. And so Madi Castaneda gave me the opportunity to give the lecture, but I had total freedom to what I was going to speak about. I ended up choosing the topic, I, the question, is racism a science problem? And, and of course, the answer is yes on many, many levels. You know, racism is a science problem in the sense that science being a, 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 an institution of society suffers from the same you know, discrimination that you know, society does. And so for many, many years, uh, uh, science has had the job of justifying the racist views or science has taken mm. upon itself the job of doing research that leads to a justification of you know, racism. And in fact, the question is race based in biology or is it a socially constructed concept is is an uh, issue a question that's been at the heart of science and for many many years a couple hundred years science concluded that race is a biological construct Uh, the problem is there was very little data in you know support of that and we now realize that that's totally wrong and this dates back to like the 1970s um, and a work of uh, Richard uh, Lewinton at Harvard, who did a population genetics study and found that actually uh, we have much more in common. You know that if you basically, if you were to, if you were to get somebody's genetics and ask the question, could you uh, predict their race? You do an awful job of it. So what we now realize is based on the hard data that yes, race is a socially constructed idea. And that means that there's no biological, you know, foundation to it. And it was invented to support and justify racism. So the idea, and it's kind of weird, you would think that you'd have to define race before you define racism, but in fact, it's the opposite. Racism was perpetrated and then the idea of race needed to be scientifically founded to justify it. So that's really, uh, when we think about science, and unfortunately you would think in the modern age that's done, that doesn't exist anymore, but there's still scientific racism. And um, uh, so that's still happening, you know, today. There are still journals, I'm not gonna name them because I think by naming them, we sort of raise them to a level of uh, legitimacy. But there are mm-hmm. still journals out there, and you can Google that to find these journals. So the bottom line is that the first sort of blotch on science is that there is a lot of science done to justify you know, racism. And then science itself suffers from that, because as a result, science becomes a very heavily white male kind of enterprise. So it lacks the human diversity that we need. And there's been a lot of work done on the question you know, because we hear often we need more diverse groups working in science, working in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math to address these big problems, whether it's COVID, whether it's cancer, whether it's, you know, climate change, um, working on these big problems. And there's been some recent research, for example, a study by McKinsey establishing that when you have, for example, in business, more diverse boards, you get more profit. And so um, there's starting to be clear evidence that human diversity enhances the creativity of any kind of operation. And science has been hamstrung in a sense. It's sort of bit, it's shot itself in the foot. The 
scientific racism has made it so that there are less likely to be diverse people working in science, which makes it less likely that uh, STEM can address these problems. Yeah, and does uh, so it become, become self-fulfilling in that sense? Yeah. It does, it does, exactly right. So you just don't, you simply, so if you're a person of color walking into a science classroom and you're the only one, and I've had, you know, I, when I teach chemistry, if I have one or two people of color in, you know, the classroom, uh, that's a very typical situation. So if you have that, and if you're that, you, you know, person, you, you can't help but wonder, at some point, even though you may be absolutely brilliant, you may help but wonder, do I really belong here? And so for that reason, it's been very difficult for STEM to get the critical mass of either uh, people who identify as women or people of color to stay with STEM so we can start to really diversify the workforce. Yeah, yeah th thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and. You know, I think also, and you and I have had separate conversations about this, a, a lot of the reasons why people of color or women, for instance, or non-binary folks um, don't feel comfortable in STEM is because of the climate itself, right? So not only are there these racist ideals that lead to uh, mistreatment of folks, but actually when people of color and, and women and people from these underrepresented groups are actually in the field, they're treated unfairly. Um, and they're they're treated with prejudice and and discriminated against. Which again, if you're a person that values well-being, then perhaps that's not the space for you, right? Um, yeah. So I, yeah, that's I think that's an important piece of it as well. So there are some people who don't see science, particularly the natural science fields, as having a problem with racism mm -hmm. because you know the, the the nature of the scientific process, right? Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to those folks who are skeptical? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. that racism is a problem in science because, again, we have this scientific process and, you know, these yeah. um, individual aspects aren't part of it, right? Yeah. Um, how do you have conversations with those folks? How do you bring them to the table? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And it's, it, it sort of comes down to the fact that scientists are humans and humans, <laughs> we now understand from, for example, the work of Dr. Buju uh, Dasgupta in our psych, uh, psychological and brain sciences department, her work on implicit bias. And the fact is, is that you can believe that you are the most open-minded person in the world, but you're still a human being and you're still wired to judge. And some of those judgments happen before you can even think about it. And that's implicit bias. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so what that means is, is that even the most well-intentioned person is going to be subject to the socially constructed ideas of their time. <laughs> and, uh, and so that means that scientists who believe they're the most open-minded people in the world are still engaged in some kind of uh, uh, discrimination, like when they're, you know, a grad student wants to work in their group and they're reading their resume or a postdoc applies, or even if they're looking to hire faculty members, implicit bias is at work. It's sort of the in, invisible fuel that powers institutional racism. And it's, and it's hard for people, you know, the word, you know, racist is so, so very charged. And we have an image in our mind of what a racist kind of looks like. And what I, 
what I um, realized in my own sort of self, you know, discovery over the last year is the idea that I used to think that if I wasn't rabidly, you know, racist, that I was okay, that I was, <laughs> you know, that I was in some sense not contributing to the problem. Yeah. But I've since realized what the word anti-racist means. Anti-racist means if you're not actively fighting racism, you're in a sense passively contributing to it. <laughs> um, and, that, and that passive contribution to racism is coming through this implicit bias. So bottom line is this is happening in all walks of life and it's happening in science as well. Thank you. So now I wanna talk a little bit about the ways this understanding has shaped the way that you teach. Um, you know, you've had, um, particularly over the, the course of the last year or so, you've had um, this strong awakening um, and it's changed certainly the way that you yeah. talk about these topics, but how has it changed you in the classroom? How has it changed the way that you teach? Yeah, that's a great question. It has changed a lot. Um, I mean, it's changed a lot of the way that we do our work in ICONS in terms of uh, 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 recruiting and admissions, <laughs> and also our sort of more uh, enhanced focus on inclusive teaching practices. But even if I take a step back and get a little philosophical, I hope that that's okay. It's perfectly um, okay. Perfectly okay. Cool. Thank you. Um, is the sort of the epistemology, so sort of the, our our concept of, of what scientific understanding even means. Um, the one of the things that's so I think beautiful about science is the idea that we have this notion of objective reality, that there's an objective reality, and that it doesn't matter who's doing the study. You know, so if you're studying a certain kind of molecule and you have people in Australia and people in Africa and people in Asia and people in America, and they're all studying a certain kind of molecule, as long as they're using the processes of science, they're supposed to get not only the same answer, but they're supposed to get the right answer as long as they're doing peer review and proper controls and all that stuff. So the point is, is that the identity of the investigator is supposed to be not at issue, it's supposed to be not important. And um, so that's cool, but it also raises a problem. And it creates the, uh, the idea that you're not supposed to talk about the identity of the scientist. You're only supposed to talk about the proper processes and controls doing science. And so that idea um, filters into the mindset of science and also the doing of science, the teaching of science. So now I have a science classroom and because we're doing science, we're not supposed to talk about the identities of the people in the classroom. And once we say that, and so this, there's this phrase, if you ignore race, you have license to ignore racism. If you can, if you're allowed to ignore identity, human identity, you have license to discriminate. And that is from a sort of philosophical, pro that's the philosophical problem about science. And that's why discrimination in general and racism in particular in science is still a thorny problem because <laughs> it's baked into the way we think about it. We're not supposed to notice human identity. 
And if, we, if we're allowed to not notice human identity, we have license to not notice discrimination based on identity. And that is the fundamental epistemological problem that we need to, we just need to, we need to talk about it. We need to, scientists, people in STEM, STEM workers, STEM educators, just need to start talking about this problem. So one of the things that we've done in the ICONS program is we hired Dr. Allie Hunter, who's actually one of the instructors in ICONS. And so, and she's a sort of a, a, a national, she's uh, done the scholarship to make herself a national expert on this, the nexus between social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion, and STEM. So she teaches in ICONS and she's run some inclusive uh, pedagogy workshops on what does it mean to identify, to, to um, be able to be culturally competent in a classroom, to be able to discuss identity, the people, people's identity in a classroom, to engage in equitable you know, group work. What, what does this mean? And, um, and just one simple example is that one of the things that we do in ICONS very often is we, uh, so we'll expose like, for example, we want to get UMass to net zero carbon by the year 2030. When I say we, I mean the chancellor, uh, Subhaswamy, has challenged the campus to ask the question, is it even possible to get us to net zero carbon emissions by the year 2030? So when we share that with the ICON students, they get very excited and we start creating ideas for what are the kinds of uh, questions we need to answer, the kind of problems we need to solve. And a typical thing to do would just be to throw that out to the class and let people raise their hand. And there's a problem with that because not everybody has had the lived experience to be able to ideate on the fly and to be able to share and to have the confidence to share their ideas. And so the people who, for whatever reason, have had previous research experiences that make them believe that their ideas are worthwhile are going to soak up the oxygen in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's not an equitable and inclusive way to teach. So Dr. Hunter has taught us all in ICONS different ways of going. So the so-called uh, 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 brain write, where everybody gets a few minutes to write on stickies. And so they're sort of alone with their thoughts and then they can turn to a partner and then share ideas. And then eventually we get to the point where we collect ideas and everybody benefits from other people's ideas. But first, everybody needs time on their own. So that's just one small example of mm -hmm. changing the way that we teach. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. I'm positive that um, that one example will certainly help someone make their classroom more inclusive. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned icons a few times, and I want to mm -hmm. sort of segue to that conversation. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot of work with your colleagues on the program, as particularly mm -hmm. um, to ensure that the program is rooted in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I would say particularly within the last year even. Um, yes. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about the program, how yeah. you're supporting students along their four-year journey, but also mm -hmm. how are you supporting um, our campus-wide efforts um, in alignment with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, so we, I mean, when we, you know, developed ICONS back in 2010, the idea was that um, really two things. We want a program in STEM that's going to prepare students to tackle problems in, you know, the real world. So then when they're done with college, 
they're ready to hit the ground running. And of course, they're going to hit multifaceted problems. They're going to have to work in diverse teams. And so if they want to be good at that when they're done with college, they need practice when they're in college. But the other aspect is we want to create a program that's going to help students change the world for, for the better. So there has to be some ability to innovate and create new ideas. Um, and a, a big you know, piece of this is human diversity. So bringing students, we have about 30 different STEM majors. About, uh, uh, you know, we take students from College of Natural Sciences, which has, uh, I think, 14 majors, from engineering, which has something like seven majors, from computer science, from uh, the School of Public Health and Health Sciences, and then, you know, BDIC. So a whole spectrum of different colleges. As long as a student has a critical mass of STEM in their major, welcome to ICOMS. So there's disciplinary diversity, but there's also got to be a sense of just human diversity writ large. The idea that if you're working in a diverse team, that diversity can be produce a sort of a productive tension that gives rise to more creative problem solving. So that's always been at the core of what we're doing in ICONS. However, we made the mistake of thinking that if we build it, they will come. And meaning that if we build a program that explicitly values diversity, that we will naturally and spontaneously get a diverse applicant pool of students applying to ICONS. And from that applicant pool, we can have a diverse student body. And it did not happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we've done well with respect to gender diversity. We've always had actually, I think, more women in ICONS than men and more women graduating from ICONS than men. But from the ethnicity and race uh, standpoint, ICONS has been pretty white. And, uh, and what we realized over the last year is that this idea, again, implicit bias, in, institutional racism. And it's hard, I mean, I, I, I love ICONS. I, it's, it's, I, I feel like ICONS is probably the most important thing that I do. It's maybe the most important thing I'll ever do. And to say out loud that ICONS suffers from institutional racism is a thing, is a statement that breaks my heart. But I know deep down with my newfound appreciation, it's true. And so what we had to do this year was to do a, just a full program audit, leaving no stone unturned, looking at all the policies and the processes, the way that we message about ICONS, the way that we you know, recruit the way that we undergo admissions, and as I said, the way that we teach. Um, and I, I'd be happy to give some examples of some of the changes that we made, but with our recruiting in the fall 2020 cohort, which is the 11th cohort of ICONS, we ended up with a, a majority non-male and majority non-white uh, cohort with, for example, uh, BIPOC, we had 28% of our students are BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as opposed to the UMass number, which is less than I, uh, I think it's less than 20%. So the bottom line is what we realized was that if we really put our minds to it, there are fantastic students in STEM who are ready, willing, and able to do ICONS work, and we're able to, pr uh, to produce a diverse, you know, human diverse uh, student body ready to tackle these these problems. So I have a question for you. Um, why and how 
why did that number jump? Why did that number of black indigenous um, people of color, generally mm-hmm. speaking, why did that number yeah. jump, you know, yeah. and so significantly high? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, on a certain level, we're relative. So we have about 200 students in the program. Last year, we took 72 students into the program uh, from an applicant pool of about 160 students from an eligible. Uh, so all, so we accept applicants from first and second year students in STEM. That's about, there's about 5,000 students who could in principle apply. We've got 160 applicants. So the bottom line is, is that we're relatively small program in a relatively big pond, mm-hmm. which means that we could over, you know, represent if we really wanted to. Yeah. And we decided we really wanted to. Yeah. We, we basically yeah. asked the question, how would our behavior change and with respect to our recruiting and admissions if we took human diversity as our number one priority? Mm-hmm. What would change? And so one of the things that we did was we, um, we so as, as I said, we accept applicants from first and second year students. But in the past, we've kind of given lip service to taking applicants from second year students. One of the things we've done in the past has gone into every single STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math class. And, um, oh, and I have to say, because I'm going to forget if I don't, we've also, we actually are taking students from the Eisenberg School now as well. So it's STEM and uh, Eisenberg, which is incredibly important because at the end of the day, if you want actual solutions to problems, you got to figure out a way to pay for them. You have to make them into viable not, not necessarily business, they don't have to be businesses, but they have to be viable. And bringing that business kind of perspective is you know, critical. So we um, you know, discovered how to, bring, how to bring together Eisenberg and STEM students. And so that, that also actually increases in a certain sense, the diversity. <laughs> um, but what we did was we, we we said, okay, if we really want second year students, we actually not only have to go into all the first year classes to give a five minute pitch, we have to actually go into all the second year STEM classes. Yeah. And we hadn't done that before. And we we're like, why have we done that before? So the other thing is that the application process itself, um, the, what we assumed is that if you, put an appli- if you put an application online, students will be able to figure out how to write their answers or students will be able to, They'll be able to rep, they'll be able to put their best foot you know, forward. And so what we did was we ran application support workshops using you know, technology, using Zoom. And, um, and from an equitability standpoint, uh, we, we opened that up to the entire campus. We recorded it, we made that um, available, but we also went to various student groups. So if, if you really want to bring diverse, you know, populations, I know that we, there's no such thing as a diverse student, but there are diverse populations of students. So I got to thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yes, there is no, there's such a thing as a human being. There's no such, but there are diverse populations of human beings. So if you want a diverse population and you know that there are students from underrepresented groups, for example, in Dr. Zingenbein's BioPioneers um, group, then you have to go to them. 
you can't assume they will come to you. So I uh, had, I was very fortunate to be able to go via Zoom and spend time with these folks, fantastic students, very eager, ambitious, very talented students, and you know, present icons to them, then come back again, take any questions they have, come back a third time, and actually talk explicitly about the application you know, process. So um, changing the way that we recruit, instead of assuming students will come to the website, bringing the website to them. Another big change was the admissions process. So actually how, and our admissions process involves two steps. Student write, students write answers to essays. So three essay questions, short. And then we also have all applicants engage in a 15 minute phone conversation with one of the alums of the ICONS program. Because again, not all students put their best foot forward with a, a written answer. Some students put their best foot forward with a spoken answer and vice versa. So mm -hmm. having, a multimodal process. Um, a so, so in, in a sense, you want a diverse application process to, uh, to welcome diverse populations of students. But then, I, then that all gets scored based on the, alum, the alumni um, interviews and uh, faculty are reading the essays, that all gets scored. But in the past, we've sort of put too much weight in those scores as if they really mean something. And that, and the I, the whole idea of scoring, what's the point of it? In the past, we just do the simple thing of asking the question, well, who are the top, who are the top students based on the scores? Let's admit the top students. <laughs> and when you do that, you for whatever reason, maybe based on previous experiences, lived experiences, certain kind of privileges that students have had, the top scores are not. Uh, don't give us a very diverse population. Whereas if we realize that that scoring is kind of meaningless, it's very subjective, it's, and, and it also maybe puts a bias into some lived experiences that not all students have had. If we ask a totally different question and say, which of these students are likely to succeed in the ICONS program? <laughs> very different question. And, yeah. we, and we look at, and then what we did was we looked at the school of about 160 students. There are about 130 students who would likely succeed in the ICONS program. And I should also say that what, some of our most successful ICONS alums have been the students who have just gotten in, student number you know, 60 or number 70, which means that this yeah. the scoring is meaningless. So I if we say- That's-, that's yeah. a that's a fantastic point though, right? Is that recognizing the lack of diversity, taking ownership in some ways for the lack of diversity, um, at least in part being due to the questions that are being asked. Um, and probably at some point recognizing that those questions that are being asked are rooted in the likeness of the people asking them and the people that are being, that are performing well on them, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and then in the end, you all actually changing the research question, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. um, to success instead of just using again what you call this arbitrary, yeah. you know, way of of evaluating folks. I think that's right. a fantastic right. lesson in yeah. shifting completely the way that you think in order to one prioritize um, diversity. Um, and inclusion, but also prioritize what you really probably want in the end, which is successful students. 
um, who are going to go out and do really amazing things. So I just want, I thought that was a fantastic point of emphasis. Thank you. Thank you. So, right. So just like you said, Neff, at, at the end of the process, shifting our view, we ended up with a pool of about 130 students <laughs> who we felt could succeed in the program. I mean, so now the onus is on us to do the fundraising to, uh, to grow the program to be, able to, to be able to afford 130 students. But now we ask the question, with that, could what's the maximum human diversity that we could possibly create from this pool? And voila, we and that involves again all you know, race, ethnicity, gender, uh, major, science, engineering, computer science. You know, we 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 want to have, and at, at the end of the day, um, it's that they are there. So yeah. the and so we ended up with the largest, the strongest, and the most diverse cohort in our history. That's fantastic. Something else that you mentioned a few moments ago that I wanted to um, emphasize was just being very intentional about the ways that you recruit, right? Not expecting the students to find you, not expecting. And I think that's a lesson that certainly folks that are listening to this podcast can take and apply to other parts of their life or other parts of our campus community. But the idea of going to where um, those underrepresented folks live, um, where they feel safe, going to those spaces and sharing mm -hmm. the things that we have to offer them, right? Sharing yeah. icons with them in a space that you know that they feel safe. Because oftentimes what I found is that um, underrepresented groups, whether it be women or whether it be um, people of color, um, ethnic, um, ethnically underrepresented folks, whatever it might be, a lot of times the reasons why they aren't necessarily gravitating towards certain communities is because they don't see people that look like them there. And that mm -hmm. is a signal that that might not be a safe space, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if that was a safe space, then maybe there would be more people of color there. Mm -hmm. But I think, right. you know, going to the spaces where they are and saying, hey, we don't have a lot of people of color here because we haven't been doing the work. Now we are. And we're here and we value you and we want you. Um, right. I think that's just a fantastic story that others across our campus community can certainly apply to the work that they're doing. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah sure. And when I did that, I felt totally you know, humbled to have the chance to spend time with these students. And an important message to those students is that we want you because we know you're smart, mm -hmm. period. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's great. So I want to ask one last question. I know we're mm -hmm. short on time here. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but the that's icons program. <laughs> no, not at all. This is this is good stuff. And the storytelling mm -hmm. is important. I think the lessons mm -hmm. come from the stories. Mm -hmm. um, the icons program just had a virtual exhibition for senior projects. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine you are very, very proud. Um, yeah. You actually invited me and I was unable to mm -hmm. attend because mm -hmm. of yeah. Um, other meetings that I had, which I regret. What are some of the real world problems um, that the students have yeah. been taking on this year? Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, we had our largest uh, graduating class. We had 36 students, again, from across the spectrum of majors. And uh, they were studying everything from antibiotic resistance to nuclear explosions, from um, creating, uh, let's see, new, um, 
kinds of uh, nanoparticles. So, uh, nanopart you, you know that um, the COVID vaccine, many of them had to be kept very, very cold. And that's because they were using a certain kind of you know, technology that uh, was not very stable. And so it had to be kept cold. So there were students working on a replacement for that using protein-based uh, nanoparticles. There was, for example, a, a, a project studying soils in the Arctic and using that as a measure of climate change. You know, there's, there are still folks who uh, believe that climate change, that what we're experiencing right now is sort of a natural cycle. And so there was a project that showed beyond the shadow of any doubt that no, 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 this is not a natural cycle. This is something outside the regime of a natural cycle. There was even a project looking at trying to get ahead of unhealthy you know, behaviors with respect to uh, uh, drug abuse or unhealthy sexual habits by uh, uh, developing some interesting uh, diagnostics that could be applied to adolescents. So to very young folks and drawing you know, correlations between adolescent behaviors and future unhealthy uh, behaviors. And, um, and that you know, final project is likely to yield some, uh, some new sort of recommendations for uh, 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 pediatricians for looking for these you know, problems. So I mean, just a, a incredible spectrum, again, back to this word, incredible diversity of work, but all with a focus on applying STEM to solve not only STEM problems, but uh, uh, societal problems. So I couldn't be more proud of these students. And I look forward to seeing what they'll do when they get out into the real world. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we go? Well, I just want to thank you for, for your work and um, for your commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion at UMass. You know, one of the things, I guess one of the big things that is the takeaway that we now understand about icons is that diversity, equity, and inclusion is, it's, it's, it's really all that we do. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a nice to do, or it's not an add-on. It's actually all that we do to the point where we changed the mission statement of icons to really highlight the need for a diverse you know, generation of future leaders. And the fact that all about our teaching is about inclusive, you know, teaching. So the importance of that. So I just want to thank you for your efforts and the impact that you can have across this entire campus in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Oh, that's very kind of you. Professor Auerbach, thank you for coming to the show today. It's been a fantastic conversation, and I'm sure our community has learned a lot. I am looking forward to following all the great work that the ICON students are doing, as well as you and your team of faculty um, and staff. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Dignity and Respect in Action, and keep tuning in for more podcasts all about the UMass experience. If you enjoyed today's discussion, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Thank you again. I'm your host, Dr. Neff Walker, and we'll see you next time.